G'day guys, Tom Craig here. Welcome to my podcast, The Help Side. Now the help side is a term in hockey that refers to the other side of the pitch, away from where the ball is and the action happens. And in the same way, the aim of this podcast is to give you, the listener, an insight into the other side of elite hockey players, to hear about their highs, their lows, and what makes them tick. We'll also hear about the journey they went through, from having fun in the backyard to playing out their dreams on the world stage. So whether you're a player, a coach, an umpire, a parent, a fan, or just a fan of sport in general, I'm hoping this podcast gives you a window into the world of elite athletes, and even better, encourages you to get more involved in our great sport. You can hear the chat we had last week and others you may have missed by searching The Help Side on any major podcast platform. And if you want, you can like and subscribe our page to make sure that you're up to date with the most recent episodes. Anyway, that's enough of that. Let's get to this week's guest. When it comes to champions of our sport, they simply don't get any bigger than Rochelle Hawks. Winner of an incredible three Olympic and two World Cup gold medals, Rochelle was the captain of the all-conquering hockey roos, who during the 1990s swept all before them to become arguably one of the greatest teams of all time, not just in hockey, but across any sport. In 2000, Rochelle joined Dawn Fraser as one of only two Australian women to win gold at three separate Olympic Games. And in 2018, she was made a member of the Order of Australia for significant services to hockey as a player, captain, role model, and commentator. From growing up in country Western Australia to reading the athlete's oath at the Sydney Olympic Games, Rochelle's story is one of resilience, determination, and extreme dedication that saw her reach a standard of achievement that quite frankly may never be seen again in our sport. If you're interested in leadership, teamwork, and what it takes to win, then this podcast is for you. This is the help side of Rochelle Hawks, OAM. Well, it's um, my pleasure to introduce a very special guest. We have this episode. She's an absolute superstar of not just Australian hockey, but world hockey and also world sport. Probably the most well-credentialed person I could ever hope to have on this show. I'm here with former hockey roo, Rochelle Hawks. Rochelle, how are you going? Very well, thank you. Thanks, Tom, for having me. No problem whatsoever. I'm going to start um, with the Sydney Olympics because that is a memory that's etched in my mind. Um, it's hard to believe that it was 20 years ago um, and that was where you beat Argentina in the final. You threw your stick up in the air, as did the rest of the hockey roos, and that was it. Third gold medal wrapped up, career over. How do you, uh, how do you remember that moment? Yeah, as you mentioned, it's certainly etched in my memory because going into that particular Sydney Olympic Games, I knew it was going to be my last campaign as you plan for your future post-hockey career. So it was always going to be one of the most memorable games given it was a home Olympic campaign. The last one was 56 in Melbourne. We weren't you know, quite sure how it was all going to pan out in terms of um, the preparation for the Games. There'd been a lot of speculation that Sydney wouldn't be ready and they wouldn't do it justice. And certainly arriving at the village and getting a feel for village life and what it was going to be like, I certainly any um, concerns I might have had about the Games were certainly dismissed pretty quickly because I knew this was going to be something special. And and it delivered in spades and going into that campaign, it was always going to be pretty tough because 
we've been ranked number one for a number of years and won every major tournament other than the Champions Trophy leading into Sydney, um, which was in Holland. And by the way, that was kind of a manufactured loss to try and make sure that we delivered in Sydney. So there was a bit of gamesmanship that went on there. So that was the only tournament that we didn't win and went into Sydney with high expectation and absolutely brilliant Olympic Games overall. And the team played pretty consistently well. And then of course, getting to the final, it was against Argentina. And as you mentioned, we managed to prevail and ended up winning that game 3-1. And yeah, the gold medal was ours. So a lot of hard work had gone into that preparation, as you know, and we, we got the rewards, I guess we deserved because of all the effort and sacrifices that we made. That's really interesting. And um, I'm going to pick up on the manufactured champions trophy a little bit later, because that's something that I haven't heard about. And I'm very, very interested mm. to hear about that. Have you picked up a hockey stick since then? Look, I, I did very briefly. I, I started my career playing hockey, um, mm. not a career, but playing sport for the love of it and hockey at the age of six. And so it was a long journey, a lot of you know, heartache along the way with injuries and things like that. So it was time to give up. And then I was coerced into coming back to play a couple of club games because the, the team of choice at that time was North Coast Raiders and played a few games and uh, they, they ended up um, making sure that they didn't get relegated. And then that was it. I said no more. It was really quite a hard journey in 2001 to play about five games. I, I hadn't really done a lot other than my own personal fitness and as you know playing hockey you need to be training yeah. all the time to play at the level you want to play at and the other thing is I just thought well there's no way I'm ever going to be able to play at that level or be as fit again so I really didn't want to play hockey for the fun of it because I would get frustrated and so hook up golf and and other sports and you know you just think for the moment you're going to carve out a career in the next sport but time catches up you with you age is not very kind so so I didn't uh, manage to end up having a golf career after hockey <laughs> but um, but that was the only time I've picked up a hockey stick other than coaching and mm. and it's quite it's quite funny when you're coaching kids and things like that and you you know, as you mentioned, Sydney 2000, some 20 years ago. So as I referred to, age isn't kind and try and do some of those drills and demonstrate to the kids. And at times it's been quite embarrassing. You know, you don't have the right footwear on, which is not an excuse, but you, you try and do a tommer and you slip over and it's embarrassing. <laughs> like, they're like, what is she doing? I could do it better than her. So, yeah, there's been some... Uh, challenging moments in trying to to replicate some of the skills that you once had and and as I mentioned age is not kind and it's been quite an interesting funny journey coaching that's for sure. Right well um, we're going to go back to a time where age was kind to you um, not that it isn't now but back in the day when you're a kid uh, <laughs> my sources tell me that you um, were born in Albany Western Australia. Um, right. And was it was it always Albany growing up or at what stage did you move to Perth? Well, we had a bit of a journey in our youth. Um, I have two other sisters, so three girls in the family. 
poor dad, he didn't get a boy, but, uh, you know, some would say I made up for that with that tomboy sort of attitude and playing every sport and kicking a football with the next door neighbours and playing cricket. So in some ways he, he got his boy from a sporting perspective. But um, we stayed in Albany for two years. Dad was a policeman, so we had quite the journey lived in Albany two years, then moved to a wheat belt town only about an hour from Albany called Ongarup and stayed there for three years and then moved to another town which is only an hour northeast of Perth called Wandawi, stayed there for three years and spent a large chunk of the last stages of primary school and early stage of high school in Northern, which was only half an hour up the road from Wandawi, which is just an hour and 15 northeast of Perth. And then finally, when I was in year 10, uh, going into year 10, moved to Perth and went to Hollywood High School. So, yeah, we had quite the journey and clearly a lot of country people love their sport and I played everything from your basketball, your tennis, your netball, your squash and your hockey. And then once I got to Perth, as most people, when they have that desire to play elite sport, other sports get in the way because they clash and I had to make a decision. So I was playing when we moved to Perth tennis and I played basketball, thought basketball a bit short, need to need a bit more height on me. So decided hockey was the way to go. Mum was big influence. She'd been a hockey player and started up a, a junior hockey association in Wondawi. They didn't have one. So she was very much an integral part of that and her influence really guided me into hockey and that's where I, I started to, I guess, get a real taste for what, a, you know, leading into elite sport would look like and, mm. and start to really get a passion for wanting to represent my state and country. Mm. Hockey is a pretty difficult sport. I can imagine you probably excelled at all those sports you tried. Is that the case? I was okay. I, I was all right. Hand-eye is not a problem, but certainly I wasn't great at dance or aerobics and um, it was something that was new at the time and I remember going to some fitness class and it was very much about that aerobics type style and I would always go up the back of the class and I was so uncoordinated in, in terms of rhythm and uh, yeah but but certainly anything with a bat and a ball or a stick and a ball and basketball it was fine but um, yeah take me away from that general sports arena into into dance and I was hopeless. And you weren't always remembered as or you weren't only remembered as a fantastic athlete but also uh, one of Australia's most well-credentialed leaders. Um, is leadership something that you kind of fell into while you were young? You were always in positions of leadership or? Yeah, look, I, I guess the leadership, you know, some of uh, the players that you in a team with love your leadership style. You, I think with leadership you don't, I think it's quite true that you don't have everyone because in the change room, because there's aspiring leaders, there's people that might not like your personality style and you might clash with them. But I think leadership about if even if, they might be aspiring or they don't like everything you do. If you can take them on a journey with you and they'll follow you, I think that is the hallmark of a leader. And I, I really did fall into it and I was appointed by Rick Charlesworth and I think he thought I was an okay leader but didn't have all the qualities, that he was a pretty hard man to please. And mm. you know, on reflection and some of the um, commentary that's sort of been 
gone around Australia and the world actually because there's a book that's been written by Sam Walker about the captain's class and mm. and was not exactly complimentary but um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know in saying that I think if you talk to a lot of the players they would have a slightly different view not all of them some of them would agree with him some of them don't but I think leadership to me is about being able to take the majority of the group on that journey and having them follow you and you lead by example. And, you know, within a, a lead, within a team and your leadership group, you have different personality types and I certainly was a doer and I would get on with it. Minimalists didn't need a lot of words but just would lead by example. And then we had others who were the mentors, the nurturers, the ones that really brought the younger ones along. And then you had people who were, oh, what about this idea, you know, the strategic side of things, the strategists. So you've got to have that leadership group that is reflected in different personalities. And um, whilst I probably wasn't the greatest leader in the world, I certainly gave it my all and, you know, didn't have to say much, but by my actions, I think that then inspired the team to yeah. do things and and that was i guess the, the strength of my leadership so if we talk about team building very quickly i mean the team that you and others managed to build through that 90s is is like the i guess the all blacks the current day all blacks of of times gone past and one of the best teams to ever kind of walk the earth putting it mildly um yes in that in that in that team building so it requires the sum of parts right is that what you're saying so yes. you were kind of like an inspirational leader you did your work on the field and those sorts of things and you had other people around you filling in in the areas you perhaps yeah. lacked. yeah absolutely those gaps because i think most leaders don't have all of the skill set you just mm. can't and you have different personality types and i think within a leadership group you've got to reflect them they couldn't have all of the same leadership group that was similar to me because it mm. just wouldn't work you have to have different types of personalities but um our our group certainly reflected that and i think some of the key parts to our success were the fact that we had yes yeah, strong core group of players that moved from one Olympics to the next. And I think you have to have that if you don't, very hard to, and that creates sustained success because you have got this group moving through, bringing other ones along and leading the way. And so some of my leadership style in training was about the hard work. I was really keen on working hard and then bringing others with me and, you know, get a bit sort of uh, disappointed if people weren't trying and things like that. And then there are the others where training session might have been a bit hard and you'd get someone who would say to the young one, it's okay, you're still developing, you're still learning. You didn't do your best run or, you know, your best fitness test then, but it's okay, you'll get there. And so those nurturing ones and then the others in deep discussion with the coach about, well, this penalty corner, I think, you know, we really need to look at this. Um, this side is really weak in this particular area. So that's that's how we sort of created that success. And then we had... Girls, and let's face it, in sport, the mentally tough survive and especially you go to Olympic Games, it is different. There's more pressure that you put on yourself. The public, if you're ranked in the top three, they expect you to medal. And so that pressure, um, you need to be able to deal with that. And I think we had 
a group of girls, as I said, a core group that went through the journey and they were also mentally very tough, mm. very tough. And a, a lot of people have sort of looked at the current team and and how the hockey roos were when we were successful. And a lot of people have said to me, there was a certain mongrel about you girls. You, you, you one, believed in yourself, but you didn't take any prisoners. And as a collective, you might not all get on, but representing Australia, you were bound by that and you would all protect each other. And I think that really shone through. And we wouldn't give up. We knew that we had the game plan through, obviously, some good coaching um, that we were afforded within the group but we had a game plan that if the chips were down we our our core group would lift and bring everyone along with them and and they were some of the key ingredients to success and the fact that we were adaptable the fact that we had innovation it it all you know comes together and helps make for a, a very successful team there's a lot in that I want to pick up on, but one thing that uh, in particular, I spoke to Katrina Powell a few weeks ago um, and Trini yeah. said similar things to you, but the thing that yeah. really resonated was that you were incredibly tough as a team, like yeah. incredibly, incredibly tough, not just as a unit, but even on each other. And there was kind yes. of an uncompromising standard of, of performance and of training ethic that um, must have stemmed down from you, I guess. And did you ever feel like you had a little bit of pressure? I mean. Rick, as we know, he's he's an uncompromising yes. guy and I can yeah. imagine the fitness regimes would have been pretty tough and he runs some pretty hard training sessions. And I can imagine sometimes you would probably want to stop like anyone. Um, yeah, absolutely. And over the course of the journey, because I was there for 15 years and mm-hmm. I'd had injuries and motivation ebbs and flows, but I guess um, individually you have to keep pushing yourself because the whole philosophy was we increase the squad size there's more competition within it you can't rest on your laurels even if you're a player that has been around for some time there's other girls chasing you and you know I worked on some of those areas that I knew I had the advantage and one of them was fitness I might not have been the fastest runner certainly wasn't um, but I could work on those strengths and I prided myself on the fitness and was always within the top group for fitness and that was something that I had to keep working on and mm. making sure that I was leading the way in because that was my strength. That was where I had an advantage, competitive advantage, and that was really true. Other girls, it was their sprinting. Other girls, it was, you know, they just worked really hard in training. Other girls off the field, they were meticulous in their preparation and the way they went about their diet, um, you know, they, they made sure that they ate very well and then within the group internally we went from really from my time in 85 where it was semi-professional so it was a different era but we went to being professional but also everyone challenging each other as training mentioned it was tough and people would pull you into line and the other thing was that people were starting to get fitter their skin Mm. folds were dropping so this Mm. then meant that if you know the the core group of girls had really low skin folds, then you couldn't be way up the other end of the spectrum because you would look silly. Mm. And so that competition within the group was very obvious and intense. 
but leading into an Olympic campaign that was necessary. And of course, we had our times post-Olympics where we had, you know, a bit of a downtime and we weren't as fit and, and um, as fast and as mm. drilled at training. And I look at post-96, most of us had a really good off-season. Then we go to the Champions Trophy in Berlin in May, which was, what, some nine months later. And most of us, by our own admission, would say we were we're very much out of shape and mm. and that we, we won it and we had mm. that call again and we were good enough to, to get through it but there was players I, I know myself I had a really average tournament but then there's other players that could take up the slack so that was another strength of ours you didn't all have to be playing at your brilliant best for us to win there could be you know there was a spectrum and you move somewhere along that spectrum but as long as there are about half the team playing mm. at their best then we were good enough to win. So that was a real advantage we had over other teams mm. that didn't have, have that same level of um, that, that core group that went through of eight or ten players. They didn't have that luxury and they relied on two or three superstars. So if they were having particularly poor games, then their side would struggle to win. So we could win even if we weren't at our very best. And that was a hallmark of the side. Yeah, I think uh, one thing that, um, again, it's it's a Rick philosophy. That's kind of the first thing that I I think of is um, the war of attrition sort of thing. Yeah. And I guess you yeah. can't hold that war of attrition without being, you know, the fittest team out there and looking across your results during the Olympic Games in particular. I mean, you guys ground teams down. Like uh, yeah. there were there were games where you'd be nil all or one all or um, you know like in a deadlock for a long long time, and then in the last ten minutes it'd be like Australia scores a double. To, to take a comfortable victory and those sorts of things. Um, yeah. So you're obviously a very, very fit team and, and what you're talking about means that you worked hard at it. But with yeah. that, I just want to talk about as well, it seems, the way you talk about it just seems so like this group, this amazing group of athletes who are incredibly driven, incredibly well motivated, came together and it was the perfect storm. I mean, mm. um, and it just seems like it was almost that luck would have it. All these people are in the one place, the one time, played the same sport. But I, I can't buy the fact that that luck was a big factor of it. You know what I mean? Like, um, no. Yeah. No, wanna... it's certainly having the depth and let's, let's look at it and break it down. Mm. We had a really good group of um, players that came into the system. Now, the problem we have now in sport, and if we look at why we were so successful, one, mm. we did have that, that great mix of talented players, but now... You have so many sports in Australia that it dilutes the talent pool in hockey. And that is a really big issue moving mm. forward. So we had a lot of girls in our team that probably could have gone off and played AFL, for example, now, or played um, other sports that have now become quite popular. So that was the advantage that we had. They all played hockey because they were naturally talented athletes mm. that could have really gone and done any, anything. So that really held us in good stead. But it was it was certainly the, the I believe a group had mental constitution that was second to none, and you know because obviously Rick was a tough coach, and mm. prior to that we had another coach who was extremely tough as well, and the the weaker, and I, I hear that about the current generation of kids coming through the millennials and the the um, the I generation that they don't take well to criticism mm. or someone raising their voice and it's a different it's a generational thing 
oh, we were just yelled at, berated, you know, and sometimes you're in tears. Sometimes I, I remember having conversations through the AIS with an assistant coach about how poorly I was being treated, but you found a way to get through it and you did it and you stayed in there, you hung in there, you didn't run away from it or shy away from it. And I think that is the big difference, that mental toughness, that we had that was born through our parents basically dropping us off at sport and just leaving us and letting us basically sink or swim to now where kids are like, this is too hard, I'm going to give it away. And mm. I believe that is a key difference that we stuck it out through thick and thin. We had hard times, but we knew that we would come out the other side because our parents had educated us mm. along those lines that I'm going to drop you off and you will stay there and you will train until you finish. You're not going to not stop playing. And if they enrolled you in a sport for a season, you were going to play that season out. You were not going to say, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. So it's certainly a generational change in mm. the way um, kids think today. And I think that's a really big factor as well. Interesting. Do you think that um, that philosophy could work nowadays? Absolutely. I, I think, like anything, it's about changing mindset. And I think if you've got kids early in the piece and you've really worked on that mindset aspect of the game and this is how we get success and we don't, you know, coaches these days, and I look at it across all sports, they don't yell and berate, but there's still a case where you need to tell someone that, they need to improve in certain areas and, and some people don't take kindly to that. And I think mm. it is an educational piece and setting the tone very early and this, these are the standards that we expect and sometimes it will be hard and and we don't yell and berate like the AFL coaches did in the 80s, but we still expect certain standards. If you don't meet them, then we're going to ask the question. So I, I really think it is about setting your standards, your tone and um, that educational piece because we need to tweak it because it's not the same as it was in the 80s and 90s, but we still need to bring out the toughness in these kids because I really believe that's what's lacking. And then it's excuses. Mm. That's what I'm finding. And there's a difference between whinging and moaning, which we all do in a team about a coach or a player because that that is just human nature mm. but when it's like it's not my fault mm. it's someone else's or we played really well but we didn't mm. quite get there because such and their excuses so mm. you might have played well but you still didn't win the gold or you still didn't get to where you, your target is then why didn't we do that rather than oh we did pretty well, well did you really mm. and and that's what I think has changed, that yeah, right. we, we need to not compromise and we need to take ownership for our own performance and our team's performance. And if we didn't meet our expectations, then why not, oh, we did pretty well? Well, did you? And that would be my question sure. to the current prop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very, very interesting. I want to um, draw on some of your experience in that regard then. You went to four Olympics. Um, which is incredible. You won three gold medals, which is ridiculous. Um, there was one Olympic Games in the middle, Barcelona, um, where you guys, it was a different format back then. Um, it was it was cutthroat, really. The, the crossover 
if you didn't perform well in the round games, there was no other chance. Like there were no quarterfinals and semifinals like there are now. Um, it was just top two go through. And um, that was a disappointing Olympics for you. Is, is some of these learnings coming from the disappointment of, of Barcelona or what happened there? Certainly. You mm. learn from your failures, as you know, and you scrutinise them more. Uh, the, what we often get asked is, why did you do so poorly in Barcelona? And mm. it's hard to put your finger on it. Otherwise, you know, you would make sure that you win all the time following mm. that. But I think it was a number of factors. And one, our training regime was very mundane. So we did the same thing every day. We got bored. Mm -hmm. We ran and ran and ran. And it wasn't game-specific fitness training, which they do now. It was very much you train you're doing the same things, getting bored, then you would go for a run afterwards. So it was, there was nothing um, creative about it. It was just a, a chore and like a job that you work in every day and you absolutely hate it and it's the same that you do every day. That's how it became. And I think when we got, finally got to Barcelona, we mentally weren't, alive and fresh and we hadn't um, had time to, to have hadn't tapered. We just trained into the ground, got there and we were frazzled, I think, both mentally and physically and mm. played like that. And there weren't too many games that we played well. We just played a really bland, boring game of hockey. And again, we talk about that core group. We had a number of players come through from Seoul and Barcelona but no one really played at their very best. Mm. So, again, you didn't have, you know, six to eight players really lifting the rest of the team. And I think by most people's standards, there were a couple of players that probably played very well, but not many. There was inconsistency in results uh, and performance. And I think that mental aspect of being really drained and, and not fresh and ready to go and hungry, that really comes home to me as one of the the key factors and the other thing is we go back to strategy game mm. plan mm. the very the same patterns that we played you know easy for our opposition teams to read and didn't do anything unusual didn't have any tricks up your sleeve that could create um, a bit of uncertainty in other teams I mean I think of the things we did in comparison, going into Atlanta and Sydney were wet suits, you know, the, the cooling vests, no other team around the world had them. These were those one percenters that really gave us the edge and mm. they were very evident going into 96 and 2000 and not so much in the early years where it was just the status quo, continue on doing the same things and we didn't have that innovation and, and that real thirst and hunger and drive mm. to to win and and bring everyone along that journey with mm. us. So the first in, in Barcelona, we just I just want to finish off on on the Barcelona thing. So the first few games um, went like losses and, and draws and these sorts of things, lost um, your chance to win um, back to back golds. But then in the fifth to eighth playoff, I mean you wiped New Zealand off the park and then you smashed the Dutch. It was as if like the hockey roos had come out to play. Was there a shift in thinking in between the round games and the and the finals? 
I think there was probably just a, a release of tension mm. and everyone went, well, we'll throw caution to the wind because uh, we haven't met our expectations. Mm. It doesn't really matter if we finish eighth or we finish fifth because who cares at the end of the day. So I think there was some of that. I think, yeah, we played with freedom and there probably wasn't the tenseness from the coaching bench, which when they're tense and they're uptight, that then can flow across to the rest of the team. We also, as as can happen, we had illness go through the team and this that's, you can't make that as an excuse because if half the team gets sick, well, you know, they still have to play, but the other half need to make sure they rise above it and, and those sort of things you, you've got to plan for and you've, they happen and it might only be one game where that occurs, but then the rest of the tournament, there's no excuse. So those sort of things um, just meant that we had a pretty average tournament, but the, the mind shift uh, set would have changed from those games where we were trying to get into a medal playoff to those final two games because it didn't really matter and the tension at ease, the coaches had relaxed, they played in different positions and yeah I mean I guess that probably brings home the point of when you're preparing a team there needs to be a sense of urgency and um, you know a wanting to win but also a calmness. There needs to be a sense of being calm. When you're on edge and you're too edgy and you can't come down, that's when things tend to mm. um, not go so well. So I think it, you need to be ready to go and primed, but there needs to be a certain level of calm. And I think that's really important. And, and we, I know in our successful era, because we believed in our group, we were ready to go and, and fearless and determined, but there was a sense of calm as well once we stepped on that pitch that you believed in that person next to you, you believed they had your back mm. and we could do this and we and we stick to our structures and our game plan. Mm. We can tweak it if we need to. We're not doing the status quo, the same thing over and over again. If something's not working, we can shift and change it. And I think having that system where you could adapt mm. depending on the the opposition was really important and relying on everyone in the group not just a couple of key players and that's the advantage we had over the other teams they had three or four superstars but we had some superstars but a team that could all contribute and for mine that was a really big factor that once that interchange rule came in and we could just rotate through our group, mm. then, of course, what you talked about, overrunning the teams. Well, we had the energy. And the other teams, Korea, one of the best teams that ever played, 1996 um, Atlanta Olympic Games, a five-all result in the Crazy. round game. Mm. It was a super match. It was brilliant. <laughs> and we were exhausted. Mm. But they're superstars. By the, the end, when they get to the, the, um, the final... Mm. they're absolutely exhausted mm. so all of those strategies just all coming together helped this create the success sure i just want to pick up on that tension piece the way you and trini talk about the team during the 90s it sounds like an incredibly tense place at training i mean it's it's a it's kind of an interesting dichotomy between you guys being so on each other about like striving to succeed and all these sorts of things and just like creating this yeah i don't know incredible tension but then 
you also talk about having each other's back. And I guess that probably comes out more in the tournaments and the games, as you mentioned. Right. So it seems yeah. as if once you actually got onto the pitch or got to the tournament, the tension kind of dissipated and, and just this calm was left. Is that a fair comment or not really? I think that's a fair comment. And I think that comes from setting some core values for the group mm -hmm. that we needed to adhere to. And we had a mission statement going into 96 and there were like 10, 10 commandments really that we all needed to follow. And, you know, in the workplace, in any team environment, you don't all get on and, and you have your little pockets of groups and things like that. But there were things like continually challenging yourself to go beyond your comfort zone. And you might not like everyone in the group, but you need to respect everyone. And I think, I think you've come across a really key point in that the respect was there. Mm -hmm. So we believed in ourselves individually, in the strategy of the team, and we knew that we could take anyone on on any given day. And what there might have been that competitive edginess at training and a bit of snitchiness off. Mm. But once that whistle blew, we had respect for everyone on the pitch mm -hmm. that played for Australia because we knew that they could do the job. We believed in them and they had your back, like you said, and and you had theirs because there was that team strategy there. We knew the game plan. And we knew each other could do the job and slip into you know, a variety of positions and still be able to perform. And I think that that respect piece is really, really important. Mm. I've got a question about the team dynamic versus individual flair. You guys are obviously a fantastic team and you say you didn't have the superstars of the other team, but you, you did really. Like you had some incredible, incredible yeah. players. I yeah, uh, we certainly had superstars, yeah. and I guess um, what I meant is we didn't rely on them sure. as much as, as other teams. We still mm. had superstars. I mean, Alison, for mine, is still the greatest female hockey player of all time, without mm. doubt. And I talk about others, and, and they're revered, um, like Luciana Amar, and she was brilliant, but mm. I still believe Alison was better because she could break lines and mm. take anyone on. Um, so we still had those superstars mm. and, and and our game plan, probably similar to something like you went through with Rick, was based on solid defence. And if you had just solid defence and you had that covered, then once you got over that half line, then the flair could come out and mm. playing counter-attacking hockey was obviously um, a core part of our game plan. And so, yeah, that our, our game was built on the solid defence and we had some brilliant defenders there that held that back line together. And mm. then once you got into an attacking phase, then that flair could come out. And we certainly had, I mean, you spoke to Trini, she was an incredible goal scorer. Mm. And, and then we had Nikki Hudson, who for mine, reflecting back on Sydney, I think she was one of our most important players, scored 10 goals, was just on five, but mm. was a real impact player in that particular games. And others will go on and say some others play better, but I, for mine, she was she was up there because she just had such a, a great impact. So we certainly had superstars, but then there's unsung heroes. Like we had Julie Towers, who 
was a younger player and played more probably a cameo role, but her skills were exceptional and mm. then just chimed in and scored goals when she was needed to. And, mm. and Angie Skirving had just come into the team and was absolutely brilliant as a halfback. And so these players that were unsung heroes but just came of age, it was, it was quite incredible really because they knew they had um, other players that had their back and so they could rise to the occasion. It sounds like there was a real culture of, well, I guess the respect piece comes into it, but people yeah. felt like they were free to express themselves in your team. They were. And, and that philosophy of, you know, being very solid at the back and then having the creative flair. And that's why, you know, they were strikers, the trainees, the Nickies of this world, because they did have that creative flair and that reflected their personalities. And at times they could do some freakish things, but they had that license to do that. But, mm. you know, they come back and tackle in defence and they needed to be <laughs> sure and on their game because they would certainly hear the wrath of the coaching staff or some of those senior defenders if uh, and they, they came back and, and created a, you know, caused a penalty mm. corner or something like that. So, mm. yeah, it was very much based on a solid foundation of defence and and then your creativity was allowed to flow once uh, once you got into the attacking zone. Now I'm going to briefly interrupt here to introduce a feature of the show. We'll call it our Hero of Hockey segment. We know that community sport flourishes on the back of hardworking volunteers who give up their time and effort simply for the love of it. And we want to give you, the listener, the opportunity to contact us and tell us who deserves to be our hero of hockey for the week. Tell us who they are, what club they're from, and what they've done for the sport, and we'll give them and your club a shout-out. So, get in touch via our socials, and your nominee could be chosen for the next episode. This week, we've got not one, but two heroes of hockey. The Skippings duo from the mighty Tigers Hockey Club in Darwin, Northern Territory. Over many years, Kelly and Skip have contributed to both Tigers and more broadly, to Darwin hockey in general, by lending a helping hand to just about anything hockey-related. Whether it be coaching seniors or juniors, umpiring, or helping out on committees, both Kel and Skip are always there, ready to help out. Hailing from a club that has produced the likes of Joel Carroll, Des Abbott, and Brooke Paris, both Kel and Skip were exceptional hockey players in their own right, representing the Northern Territory across numerous age groups. And they're also the only husband and wife to win the Darwin Hockey Best and Fairest in the same season. Between them, they've coached the Northern Territory Pearls, the Tigers A and C grade women, umpired both the men's and women's A grade, played A grade, played AHL, umpired at a national level, coached the Northern Territory under 18 and under 13 girls, coached the under 11 and under 17 Tigers boys, been regulars on the Tigers committee, and Kelly is in her third term of presidency, at the Tigers Hockey Club. Now, it should be noted that Skip is currently coaching the Tigers A-grade women, which means he coaches Kelly, and he says he enjoys being the boss for a few hours per week. Amidst all that, they've got three kids, Travis, Leo, and Ella, who all play for the Tigers, and as any hockey parent could tell you, orchestrating training and match drop-offs for three kids is a big enough handful as it is, and they do this in conjunction with everything else. Pretty awesome. So, to the Skippings duo, cheers. Thanks for all your work. Now it's back to Rochelle, who talks debut, injuries, and what compelled her to take some time away from the sport after winning gold in 1996. 
I started this interview wanting to find out a little bit more about you and tell your story. We've ended up on an absolute masterclass of high performance and I'm pretty grateful for that. I do want to briefly touch on on you and your journey. Um, you talk about your Julie Towers and Angie Skirvings. That was you in 1985. You made your debut. I think you were 18 at the time. Yes, correct. Yeah. Do you remember how, how you got the phone call or how did how'd you find yes, out? Yes, I do remember that vividly, actually. I, I tell the story because I was 18, <laughs> as you mentioned, and it was a pretty incredible ride because I'd, I hadn't been, I played under 21 Australian hockey, but I hadn't played for the state WA women's team. Mm. And I get a phone call out of the blue selector had tracked me down and it was pretty hard in those days. They they got a landline number. I was babysitting at the time and I got the call up saying that you'll play a test series against Germany and Australia. And I was very shocked by that and very grateful, but I didn't realise this was going to happen quite so soon. And then, yeah, I started my, my training in earnest with the Australian team and it was a rocky ride, to say the least. A young 18-year-old coming into, into a team with a group of players who had been there for some time, were very set in their ways. It wasn't an easy journey mm. trying to fit in. And mm. I remember coming back after training um, over the course of a couple of weeks and going, wow, this is tough. They're mm. really... They, they put you through the paces. They were quite bitchy and, <laughs> and quite hard to get on with. And a young girl, you think, wow, this is... This is great. I'm in the team, but it's tough. And mm. the journey was up and down, I have to say, and and got injuries along the way, compartment syndrome that really set me back early in the piece. And I had an operation in 86 and then another one in 89. And I really didn't start to play good hockey until 89 when mm. I was free of injury and, and started to make and maturity too, I was a bit older, but make a bit more of a mark. And those first few years, a bit of a blur because it was it was pretty hard going and, and pretty difficult to overcome and, and mentally very challenging. And sometimes you, you think, is it all worth it? You have one operation, you think that's going to work. And then you subsequently have to have another one. And it, there was like a three to four year gap between. So it was pretty challenging to stay in there. And, and I had times where I was very dark and didn't know if this is what I wanted and had coaches basically tell me that I was struggling and I would be very lucky to continue playing for Australia so you go through some dark challenging times and it's and it's the support around you it's whether you really want it badly enough and and the lengths you'll go to to overcome any hurdles that you have in your way. It's easy to kind of gloss over that when you look at your career as a whole I mean 279 games and a, I guess a 15 year career, 16 years, maybe um, in those times, I know one thing that Rick was famous for saying was if you're injured to me, then, you know, you're useless basically. Um, yeah, I remember yeah, that was something that he said, yeah. that can be a really difficult thing for, for someone to hear when like you're out for an extended period of time. And I know the, the environment you, um, you created in the nineties was, was tense and it was exciting and it was um, it, like, you know, it was great. But when you're injured, yeah. I can imagine it would be very, very difficult. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. So my compartment syndrome, luckily, thankfully for me, happened prior to Rick coming on board. But it was still, 
very difficult and challenging to overcome. And, um, you know, the, the, the coaching staff do have their doubts about you. And especially when it's an injury that it's not a broken leg, you know, you can't see it. Is it real? Are you making it up? Is it a, a weakness in your, in your mental ability to be able to play at that? highest level so that was certainly a challenge and I had to seek out some really good people in my life some other coaches family friends to get through it and there was some dark times and, and again you had to look at the bigger picture of where do I want to head do you really want this yes I really want this what do I have to do to get there you have to do the rehab you have to go through these ops you have to be meticulous in making sure that your rehab is of the highest standard, otherwise you might not come back. So all of those things needed to be put in place to make sure that I got back there. And, and then fortunately, when Rick came on 93, I was pretty much on my way, but I had had um, you know a couple of injuries along the way, but nothing too substantial. I wasn't a fast runner, so I didn't do my hamstrings very often, only once or twice. And I remember during the Olympic campaign, and Rick, as you mentioned, was very cautious about injuries because if you're injured, then you're no good to the team. So if they push it too much and you overdo it and you might have a niggle and then you, you know, rip your hammy off your bone, then you're going to be out for an extended period of time. So I remember in the, the course of the Olympic campaign, I got hit in the calf against Argentina in the... Uh, round game and they very cautiously uh, said you're not going to play the next day and I would have been fine to play and I accepted the decision but I would have preferred to play that game against Korea but it was their undertaking that no we need to be cautious in our response and if you um, went into that game and then made the injury worse then you wouldn't be playing off at towards the end of the tournament. So I'd accept that, but it was certainly a challenge because you kind of know your own body and I thought I'd be perfectly fine, but I had to sit out that and that was really frustrating and challenging and and you, you sort of had that discussion with Rick and oh, I'll be fine and then he consults with the physio, but in the end, you never seem to win out. The, the coaches mm. and the, the staff seemed to have their way. So that was, that was really challenging mm. during the height of the Olympic tournament to have to miss a game was really difficult and then you think next game am I going to be all right will I will I be okay and and I had to like anyone in an elite sport stay up all night 24 hours icing it off and, off and uh, yeah it's like you get through those tough times but in the end worked out and we were rewarded for our effort and what do you hold on to in those tough times what gets you through yeah I, I yeah gets me through is I reflect back on those sand hills at Swanbourne, the, <laughs> the the running up Kings Park, the um, you know the yelling at training, the um, early morning um, runs, the, the the games that we'd play at Curtin Hockey Stadium, and then go for a six kilometer run straight after that, and it's meant to be a light run to recover, but everyone's so competitive, they're sprinting the last kilometer. Those are the things that get me through it because I know that you're just not going to um, make, you're gonna make sure that all of that hard work is not in vain and that's what gets you through it. And otherwise, if you didn't all have all of that, 
to reflect on and to push you to go to the next level, then it'd be really hard. And you just say, oh, I'm not going to ask my leg for 24 mm. hours. I'll just sit here and, you know, eat some chips and watch TV, <laughs> whatever. But, yeah, you, you know what the end game is and how much it means to you. So you're going to push yourself to do whatever you can. And, and of course, you've got to have support networks. You don't have a support network and, and people that you will give you good advice, not just say what you want to hear but challenge you at times and and let you know that you might not have done your rehab as well as you should that you know these things are really important mm. after 1996 you spent a little bit of time away from the sport um people might not know that but and, and i'm not sure how long it was um actually mm. i can't find much on it would you mind talking through a little bit about that that whole experience for you Look, I think just needed a little bit of a break and I I remember saying to Rick, you know, don't need to go on every tournament because there, there was the philosophy that you'd have pretty much the main core group and I was going on every single tournament. I was going to every single um, time we went away, Australian team, whether it's mm. a test series or a tournament. And I just needed, I said to him and you know, in a meeting that it'd be great not to have to go on to go to every tournament. And there were things like we'd win um, the Australian Team of the Year post-Olympics and I, I'd say, oh, can someone else go and do that? I just needed a bit of a break mentally mm. and, and physically to really, didn't have too long out of the game, but just didn't go on every tournament and didn't go to every event. And, and you know, I said, can the vice captain go and accept that award because I just really don't want to go to everything and I, I was a captain that didn't need to be at every media conference or go to every awards ceremony because I didn't I didn't need to be front and centre I guess and so that was really important to me as well um, to make sure that we shared the, the leadership and, and had everyone feel valued and yeah, it's always hard in a team sport, as you know, mm. captain and they often, they're often the ones that are pushed out into the limelight and, and there's no question that teammates get can get really annoyed with that sort of thing as well. So you've got to be mindful. I think you've got mm. to be able to read the play a little bit and um, give everyone a bit of an opportunity. And I guess that's why we went to a leaderful team and bring everyone along and make sure everyone's a self-starter and they they try and bring out their leadership qualities. Mm. Did you did you go to training during that period? Yeah, I did. I trained, but I, um, yeah, I just made sure that I didn't have as many commitments and I, wow. I was loaded up as much and I just had a little bit of, little bit of downtime so I could reflect and think, you know, clearly and do some other things just have a bit of a social life and look at some other opportunities. And, I, and what, I, what I will say is I, I went back and studied uh, in 97. In, uh, so that took up a lot of my time. So I made sure that, you know, I didn't go to every tournament. I remember going to the Singapore Sixers in Singapore and just having some time out. And I, I actually just went to watch and then I got dragged into playing <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and then I was meant to go on a holiday post set, but I had to get back. For uni, I was that sort of worried about not passing uni, so I went and did a postgrad in marketing. So yeah, there was a post ninety six, a bit of downtime, and I could mm. get away for a bit. Why do you feel it was important to to do some study during that period? Yeah, just needed to set myself up and make sure I had 
uh, had options when I finished playing sport and really important some sports professional they don't need it but our sport we do so I'd done a, a bachelor of education in teaching I taught in the early years before we went full-time in um, 96 and then when that downtime um, in 97 I decided yeah to do that um, to do that degree and that was really really beneficial yeah, I really enjoyed that mm. it's good to to just have something else to to look forward to and to think differently and not to think about training and the games and your opposition and all of the homework that needs to go into sport these days and it was just really lovely to have that doubt it was really good for sure speaking of commitments uh in 2000 you weren't just there as an athlete. Um, you read the athlete's oath as well. Yes. And I remember um, I was five at the time. Yeah, and, I knew, five. <laughs> and I knew two players um, who played hockey, period. And they were Alison oh, Annan and Rochelle Hawks. Um, so you yeah. really, and we didn't know much about hockey at the time or anything like that, but you mm. um, and Alison, I guess, really transcended the, the hockey yeah. bubble and, and yeah. into, into becoming a household name and those sorts of things. Compare that experience of 2000. I mean, you've played 270 games. You've been a captain for nearly 10 years. You're the oath bearer, all this sort of stuff. And then in, 1990, in 1988, you were fresh-faced, um, just, I don't know, first Olympics, all that sort of thing. Can you compare the two experiences and the, and the pressure that came with either of those? Yeah, so the, the pressure in 88 was a little bit different in that that was my first Olympic campaign and you're very unsure of the Olympics and how it all works and you're very excited and you go to the Olympic Village and one of the first people I see is Steffi Graf, the great <laughs> riding a push bike through the village garden and thinking, wow, that's incredible. And so there's that sense of excitement, the sense of, the unknown, how's this all going to play out? And also you're an emerging player, but you're not kind of the integral player of the team. So there's a kind of a different role that I think was played back then because we had the substitution rule and it was very much about your core team. And unless you were in there, you were generally sitting on the bench. So the 88 experience was very much a learning curve. Sitting on the bench, played some games, but um, would have to start uh, generally and then come off and, and one of the, the more senior players would come on. So mm. I had a taste of it. So a very different experience, just a young kid with a dream, hoping to get some game time. And then Sydney had a leadership role along the way, knew it was my last campaign, knew that I needed to perform. And whilst Sydney was, I played pretty consistent. It wasn't my best tournament of all time. But there were some games where I really did step up and, and I think that was important because, like I said before, if you've got six to eight of your core group really stepping up and that's what happened during the course of that campaign, there was always six to eight that were really playing well at mm. the time mm. and they dragged the team along. And we had some, you know, pretty flat sort of games. Opening game against GB, we struggled to, to win that. Um, then we had um, games against Spain where we peppered the goals and couldn't put it in the back of the net. 
New Zealand were tough. So it wasn't all smooth sailing, but I remember the game against Spain lifted, game against New Zealand, I really lifted. And then the, the round game against Argentina, I really lifted as well. So there were three games where it sort of set the tone, didn't play so well in the opening game against GB. And then the final, uh, it was a bit of a Dow struggle, wasn't the best prettiest, as you know, a lot of the finals are. It wasn't the prettiest game in the world. It was a grind. The war of attrition, we just mm. overran them in the end. And I played pretty okay, but not not a great game. I didn't get a lot of touches. So um, the experience, though, along the way was very much you're more one of the integral part of the team. You've got a leadership role. It's your last Olympic campaign. You've won the oath. This is back-to-back gold medals. So a completely different feeling where you, you're more entrenched within the team and you know you've got a responsibility to the team and, and to perform as well as you possibly can. Mm. How do you get the most out of your teammates if you're not getting a lot of those touches? Um, how do you have an impact? Yeah, with communication, getting into the right position, the running you do off the ball, the tackling, seeing if you can get possessions that way because sometimes you're not in a game. The game seems to go around you, whether it's because someone's marking you closely or the positions that you're playing or the game's played at a, a, in a different way than it normally would and, and you're in the midfield and it's sort of bypassing you or going around you. So, yeah, it's, a, it's about that mindset and um, getting yourself... Uh, geared up and, and you know having some key phrases I'm sure you use key fra- phrases as well but mine was very much if I wasn't in the game move trap mm. pass mm. very simple but you've got to move you've got to trap you've got to pass and I found over the journey when I wasn't playing well I would tend to head towards the sidelines to get the easy receive <laughs> rather than get it you know like mm. many do rather than get it in the in the in the congested spaces and when when you're playing well you're on fire it's instinct you just trap it and get it from anywhere and you just seem to be able to dish it off or take people on so they were my sort of key words that I said to myself didn't always work but I think the one thing that I'm proud of over the journey is I played pretty consistent hockey Mm. and didn't have too many bad games and that that's one thing that I hold dear to me Mm. and that's the secret just move trap pass keep it simple that was me yeah (laughs) very simple keep it simple and just get yourself back into the game and you know yourself you know how many touches you kind of normally get in a game and how many each you know quarter now but each half I'd be getting and if I was way down on that I knew there was something wrong and and mentally sometimes you're just having a bad game I think back to club hockey and you have just a shocker and you're mistrapping and you know there's something that's led to that in your preparation the lead up mentally something went wrong or you didn't get enough sleep or your diet wasn't quite right but there's things you can do in a game to try and improve it even though you're not going to have the best game that you've ever had 2000 yeah um there's a quote that says you just didn't want to train anymore um and that's why it was time um Certainly you talking about training and that sort of thing, I can really understand that after 15 years of that, you'd be, you'd be pretty ready to go. Um, that was the right time? Yeah, definitely the right time. And you can't, you know, if you can pick a way to go out because you can't always do that, people don't always have that luxury. So I was able to pick at the right time and many of the players did 
you can't go past a home Olympic Games. They, they come around every 50 to 100 years. You, you, we won gold and I reflect back and say it was the right time and the body was starting to, to wear out a little bit and the pace wasn't getting any quicker and it was perfect timing. And then I look at what happened post-Sydney and I was so glad that I bowed out then because timing is everything and yeah, I'm really satisfied with that. Absolutely. And uh, the way you talk about, um, I guess, hockey now, once you retired, you went into a whole bunch of sporting roles. So working with the Perth Glory and um, you work as a consultant and you're yeah. the you're, you're a mentor. You're the mentor to one of our co-captains, Aaron Zalewski. Yeah. And I, I know he leans on, on you for a lot of guidance and he couldn't ask for a better mentor. Um, hockey is obviously in your bones, in your blood. And just talking to you, you obviously still care a lot about it. Um, but you are somewhat detached from hockey at the moment is there, is there interest yeah. in in getting back in and and especially with the hockey roos side of things yeah look I, I guess i'm a bit like that that's personality type of mine mm. i am um, pretty quiet and reserved you know unless i'm around friends and but it was sort of a deliberate thing because i just wanted to go and explore other opportunities in my life and the other thing was obviously i had two children who are now mm. 17 and 15 and i wanted to be a mum and i was i traveled like the, the hockey roos and the kookaburras do, we were away, you know, six months or more of the year and just wanted to be settled at home and try and be a good mum. And, and now they're a bit older, just trying to explore other opportunities. But in saying that, I've kept an eye on both the kookaburras and the hockey roos and at times I've been involved in various committees and I've, I coach my kids. So the commitments that I've had plus the coaching of my children has meant that I haven't been able to perhaps coach at a higher level. I, I did coach club hockey one season for Vic mm -hmm. Park and mm -hmm. with Shane Duncan, but then I just found it too too challenging. The kids were a lot younger. I'd see them at the top of the grandstand at the hockey stadium when the game was on and I thought, oh, my goodness, they're going <laughs> to fly off the edge. So it just, it just became... Too difficult, but um, I think the problem that women have in coaching is they have children and they away from their families for too long. It is really difficult, and that's why we don't have as many females coaching in hockey as we would like. And I am passionate about it, and I really get into it once I'm into it. But I found the commitment. I, I coached my daughter's team last year, and just the commitment is huge and then you're working full-time and doing other things it it does weigh down after a while so that's why i've kind of taken a bit of a back seat and i pick and choose i might have a season off and then i go back and coach and that's the the real reason why i haven't got into late coaching and been more on committees and and, and done things like that mm. Um, you've had 15 years of, well, more than that in, in elite sport. You've, well, I guess most of your life has been in elite sport. Um, but you've also, as I said, um, forged a successful career after hockey. Um, and with the lessons that came from sport, I'm really interested to hear how they've translated to, to life after sport. Yeah, so I think um, in the workplace, it's being able to relate to a diverse group of people, whether in a small business, medium or large, and work out conflict resolution skills, I think are really important. You solve problems 
and your conflict. Um, you have conflict in within your workplace, within your sport, and you have to know how to work through those. So I think conflict resolution skills are really important, being able to problem solve and being able to work in a, a larger environment where you're dealing with different personality types, I think it's really important as well. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of um, challenging things in the workplace and I think sport has a lot of... Um, similarities and if you can take some of those problem solving skills conflict resolution the leadership being able to show people the way and 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 um, take people along your journey I think there's some of the, the key message and, and of course in most businesses these days work ethic I mean you need mm. to have it by mm. mm -hmm. well um I do have a few more quick questions to finish that's typically what I do I would love to get in depth with so much more because um yeah, as I said, there is just so much in in your head that I would like to that I'd like to know, and I think everyone should know. Um, but just quickly to finish, I'll do some quick questions at the end. Um, hopefully, don't require a lot of thought. We've already covered yeah. who's the best player you think you've ever played with in yeah. Alison Annan. That was yeah. hands down. I mean, there was there's a jury out at the moment between the greatest of all time between um, Luciana Amar and Alison Annan. But you've said no, easily, Alison. Yeah. Easily, in my opinion, and yeah. there's others that have been involved in the game subsequently since Sydney, and they've seen her play. But from commentating and, and seeing vision, I, I believe Alison was. Yeah. Sure. Best player you've ever played against? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I, oh yeah, there's. <laughs> As I said, there was a couple of Dutch players that were brilliant. Um, Britta Becker was pretty good from Germany. She mm -hmm. would have been up there. And Luciana, as a as an opponent, yeah, she mm -hmm. would have been up there as well. What made Becker so good? She was really tall, um, yet agile. She had a change of pace, really good skills, and she had that X factor where she could really lift her team. Did she play through the midfield? She was in the midfield. So yeah. you marked her a fair bit? Yeah, so I, I um, watched her play and, and really good skills and, yeah, really admired the way she went about her work. She was really good. Mm. How do you – sorry, I'm going on a bit, but how do you how do you come up and how do you prepare to play against someone like that or was it a, a match-up that you looked forward to and you're like, I'm going to be I'm going to beat you today? Yeah, it was certainly a match-up and you looked at – their strengths and where she would generally drag the ball and you try and um, match up against that. Um, yeah, you try and, you know, get into her head a little bit and make sure you're marking really tight and she didn't really like that. And, yeah, there was there were a lot of um, sort of bit, bits of research that you did to, to make sure that you um, overcame some of those strengths that she had, and um, yeah, going in and, and just and just having a little dossier on them of um, strengths and weaknesses, and then yeah, getting in their face, getting in their grill, marking them really tightly um, it was was really I think a way she didn't like the the tight marking, um, hard checking, and uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the battles actually. Mm. Sounds like you just beat her up a little bit. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> um, okay, 1988, 1996, and the 2000 gold medal-winning team, who would win? That is an extremely difficult question. I, I, it would be between 96 and 2000. 
And I've had some people say to me, some writers say that they thought the team in 96 played better and was more consistent. Or I'll tell you what, it'd be line ball. It would be line ball. I I would have to say it's you know sitting on the fence, but it depends on the given day how mm. uh, how the I think it'd be line ball between the two teams because it was yeah you had a pretty pretty consistent teams throughout and there were only a few different faces. So I'd say we would have um, would have been a good yeah, matchup shootouts. It would have been five all draw. I <laughs> what were the main differences you think like were they different strengths and weaknesses or pretty much the same team pretty much the same team but um we there were different mm. rules in 96 to mm. 2000 so i think from memory because going back i think offside was still in then i think that and then uh, yeah i think after that uh there was no offside so uh, there was a lot more getting the ball in behind you could throw the ball in behind mm. and Use, uh, if I reflect back, you use your skills a lot more through the ball in behind. Now mm. the game is very much a passing game. Mm. So if I was to go on the sort of game plan I like better, it was about getting in behind and yeah. taking things on and slipping those little balls into the right or left wing that they yeah, could yeah, just yeah. run off to. Uh, but in saying that, offside was in was difficult to play with as well because you know it was the whistle would always blow and this was no offside was used to open up the game but I, I really like that where you throw a ball and, and run right in behind and you don't really get that mm. in this day and age because of the elongation and, mm. and, and the passing that, that goes on. Mm. It seems like um, our assistant coach Anthony Potter talks about the weighted pass and it seems yeah. like it's gone out of the game a little bit but it would have been everywhere during the offside era yeah brilliant back then and um yeah that little weighted pass where you used a bit of disguise mm. yeah i love that sort of thing it was <laughs> awesome who was your favorite to pass to did you have a really good connection i mean you played in the midfield good distributor yeah um probably let me try and think um pass to I didn't mind passing to Jackie Pereira. She was one of our best goal scorers. Um, and, yeah, I reckon Al was, Alison was pretty good. And then I reckon um, uh, Nikki, Nikki mm. Hudson would have been mm. the other. Yeah. Mm. Last question. Do you have a favourite moment in your career? I think... The Olympic Games has to be the pinnacle, but a moment in in a game was, I think, the World Cup in Utrecht in 1998. There were 10,000 Dutch people in the crowd and we won that game 3-2 with a goal just before the siren. And in terms of intensity and the crowd going wild and not being able to hear your teammates, that will go down as one of the greatest games we've ever played in. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. What a note to finish on. Rochelle, thank you so much. It's been an absolute honour to have you on the show. I know you're busy. Thank you for giving up your time. Thank you so much. Big thank you to the production team of David Moore, Tim Collier and Jimmy Stevens. If you do like the help side, please like, subscribe, interact. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at the help side on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.
That's it for now. We'll catch you on the help side next time.